0: Book Fifth of the Joyful Wisdom, part three. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Joyful Wisdom by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. Book Fifth, We Fearless Ones. Three, six, nine. Juxtapositions in Us. Must we not acknowledge to ourselves? We artists, that there is a strange discrepancy in us. That on the one hand our taste, and on the other hand our creative power, keep apart in an extraordinary manner, continue apart, and have a separate growth. I mean to say that they have entirely different gradations and tempi of age, youth, maturity, mellowness, and rottenness so that, for example, a musician could all his life create things which contradict all that his ear and heart, spoiled as they are for listening, prize, relish, and prefer. He would not even require to be aware of the contradiction. As an almost painfully regular experience shows, a person's taste can easily outgrow the taste of his power even without the latter being thereby paralysed or checked in its productivity the reverse however can also to some extent take place and it is to this especially that i should like to direct the attention of artists a constant producer a man who is a mother in the grand sense of the term one who no longer knows or hears of anything except pregnancies and childbeds of his spirit, who has no time at all to reflect and make comparisons with regard to himself and his work, who is also no longer inclined to exercise his taste, but simply forgets it, letting it take its chance on standing, lying or falling. Perhaps such a man at last produces work— on which he is then not at all fit to pass a judgment, so that he speaks and thinks foolishly about them and about himself. This seems to me almost the normal condition with fruitful artists. No one knows a child worse than its parents, and the rule applies even, paren, to take an immense example, in. Paren, to the entire Greek world of poetry and art, which was never quote, conscious unquote, of what it had done, three seven zero, what is romanticism? It will be remembered, perhaps at least among my friends, that at first I assailed the modern world with some gross errors and exaggerations, but at any rate with hope in my heart. I recognized, who knows from what personal experiences, the philosophical pessimism of the nineteenth century as the symptom of a higher power of thought, a more daring courage, and a more triumphant plenitude of life than had been characteristic of the eighteenth century, the age of Hume, Kant, Condillac, and the sensualists so that the tragic view of things seemed to me the particular luxury of our culture, its most precious, noble, and dangerous mode of prodigality. But nevertheless, in view of its overflowing wealth, a justifiable luxury, in the same way I interpret for myself German music as the expression of a Dionysian power in the German soul. I thought I heard in it the earthquake by means of which a primeval force that had been imprisoned for ages was finally finding vent, indifferent as to whether all that usually calls itself culture was thereby made to totter. It is obvious that I then misunderstood what constitutes the veritable character both of philosophical pessimism and of German music namely their romanticism. What is romanticism? Every art and every philosophy may be regarded as a healing and helping appliance in the service of growing, struggling life. They always presuppose suffering and sufferers. But there are two kinds of sufferers. On the one hand, those who suffer from overflowing vitality who need Dionysian art, and require a tragic view and insight into life. And, on the other hand, those who suffer from reduced vitality, who seek repose, quietness, calm seas, and deliverance from themselves through art or knowledge, or else intoxication, spasm, bewilderment, and madness. All Romanticism in art and knowledge responds to the twofold craving of the latter. To them Schopenhauer, as well as Wagner, responded and responds to name those most celebrated and decided Romanticists, who were then misunderstood by me, not, however, to their disadvantage, as may be reasonably conceded to me. And paren. The being richest in overflowing vitality, the Dionysian god and man, may not only allow himself the spectacle of the horrible and questionable, but even the fearful deed itself, and all the luxury of destruction, disorganization, and negation. With him evil, senselessness, and ugliness seem as it were licensed, in consequence of the overflowing plentitude of procreative, fructifying power, which can convert every desert into a luxuriant orchard. Conversely, the greatest sufferer, the man poorest in vitality, would have most need of mildness, peace, and kindliness in thought and action. He would need, if possible, a god, who is specially the god of the sick. A saviour similarly, he would have need of logic, the abstract intelligibility of existence, for logic soothes and gives confidence. In short, he would need a certain warm, fear dispelling narrowness and imprisonment within optimistic horizons. In this manner, I gradually begin to understand Epicurus. The opposite of a Dionysian pessimist, in a similar manner also the Christian, who in fact is only a type of Epicurean, and like him, essentially a Romanticist. And my vision has always become keener in tracing that most difficult and insidious of all forms of retrospective inference, in which most mistakes have been made the inference from the work to its author from the deed to its doer from the ideal to him who needs it for every mode of thinking and valuing to the imperative want behind it in regard to all aesthetic values i now avail myself of this radical distinction i ask in every single case has hunger or superfluidity, become creative here? At the outset, another distinction might seem to recommend itself more. It is far more conspicuous, namely to have in view whether the desire for rigidity or perpetuation, for being as a cause of the creating, or the desire for destruction, for change, for the new, for the future, for becoming. But when looked at more carefully, both these kinds of desire prove themselves ambiguous, and are explicable precisely according to the before-mentioned and, as it seems to me, rightly preferred scheme. The desire for destruction, change, and becoming may be the expression of overflowing power, pregnant with futurity, my terminus for this is of course the word dionysian but it may also be the hatred of the ill-constituted destitute and unfortunate which destroys and must destroy because the enduring yea all that endures in fact all being excites and provokes it to understand this emotion we have but to look closely at our anarchists the will to perpetuation requires equally a double interpretation it may on the one hand proceed from gratitude and love art of this origin will always be an art of apotheosis perhaps diathrambic as with rubens mockingly divine as with hafiz or clear and kind-hearted as with Gotha, and spreading a homeric brightness and glory over everything, paren, in this case I speak of Apollonian art, end paren. It may also, however, be the tyrannical will of a sorely suffering, struggling, or tortured being who would like to stamp his most personal, individual, and narrow characteristics the very idiosyncrasy of his suffering, as an obligatory law and constraint on others, who, as it were, takes revenge on all things, in that he imprints, enforces, and brands his image, the image of his torture, upon them. The latter is romantic pessimism, in its most extreme form, whether it be as schopenhauerian will philosophy or as wagnerian music romantic pessimism the last great event in the destiny of our civilization Paren, that there may be quite a different kind of pessimism a classical pessimism this presentiment and vision belongs to me as something inseparable from me, as my proprium and ipsissimum, only that the word quote, classical unquote, is repugnant to my ears. It has become far too worn, too indefinite, and indistinguishable. I call that pessimism of the future, for it is coming. I see it coming. Dionysian pessimism. 371. We unintelligible ones. Have we ever complained among ourselves of being misunderstood, misjudged, and confounded with others, of being calumniated, misheard, and not heard? That is just our lot, alas, for a long time yet. Say, to be modest until 1901. It is also our distinction. We should not have sufficient respect for ourselves if we wished it otherwise. People confound us with others. The reason of it is that we ourselves grow, we change continually, we cast off old bark, we still slough every spring, we always become younger higher, stronger. As men of the future, we thrust our roots always more powerfully into the deep, into evil, while at the same time we embrace the heavens ever more lovingly, more extensively, and suck in the light ever more eagerly with all our branches and leaves. We grow like trees, that is difficult to understand, like all life not in one place, but everywhere, not in one direction only, but upwards and outwards, as well as inwards and downwards. At the same time, our force shoots forth in stem, branches, and roots. We are really no longer free to do anything separately, or to be anything separately. Such is our lot. As we have said, we grow in height— and even should it be our calamity, for we dwell ever closer to the lightning, well, we honour it none the less on that account. It is that which we do not wish to share with others, which we do not wish to bestow upon others, the fate of all elevation, our fate three seven two why we are not idealists. Formerly philosophers were afraid of the senses. Have we, perhaps, been far too forgetful of this fear? We are at present, all of us, sensualists. We representatives of the present and of the future of philosophy, not according to theory, however, but in praxis. In practice. Those former philosophers on the contrary, thought that the senses lured them out of their world – the cold realm of ideas – to a dangerous southern island where they were afraid that their philosopher virtues would melt away like snow in the sun. Wax in the ears was then almost a condition of philosophizing. A genuine philosopher no longer listened to life insofar as life is music, he denied the music of life. It is an old philosophical superstition that all music is siren's music. Now we should be inclined at the present day to judge precisely in the opposite manner, which in itself might be just as false, and to regard ideas with their cold anaemic appearance, and not even in spite of this appearance, as worse seducers than the senses. They have always lived on the quote, blood unquote, of the philosopher, they always consumed his senses, and indeed, if you will believe me, his quote, heart unquote, as well. Those old philosophers were heartless philosophizing was always a species of vampirism. At the sight of such figures, even as Spinoza, do you not feel a profoundly enigmatical and disquieting sort of impression? Do you not see the drama which is here performed, the constantly increasing pallor, the spiritualization always more ideally displayed?' Do you not imagine some long concealed bloodsucker in the background, which makes its beginning with the senses and in the end retains or leaves behind nothing but bones and their rattling? I mean categories, formulae, and words. Paren, for you will pardon me in saying that what remains of Spinoza, our more intellectualist day, is rattling and nothing more what is amour what is dais when they have lost every drop of blood en paren. in summer all philosophical idealism has hitherto been something like a disease where it has not been as in the case of plato the prudence of superabundant and dangerous healthfulness the fear of overpowerful senses and the wisdom of a wise socratic perhaps it is the case that we moderns are merely not sufficiently sound to require plato's idealism and we do not fear the senses because 373 three. "science" unquote, as prejudice it follows from the laws of class distinction that the learned, in so far as they belong to the intellectual middle class, are debarred from getting even a sight of the really great problems and notes of interrogation. Besides, their courage and similarly their outlook does not reach so far, and above all their need which makes them investigators, their innate anticipation and desire that things should be constituted in such and such a way, their fears and hopes are too soon quieted and set at rest. For example, that which makes the pedantic Englishman Herbert Spencer so enthusiastic in this way, and impels him to draw a line of hope, a horizon of desirability, The final reconciliation of egotism and altruism of which he dreams that almost causes nausea to people like us. A humanity with such Spencerian perspectives as ultimate perspectives would seem to us deserving of contempt, of extermination. But the fact that something has to be taken by him as the highest hope which is regarded and may well be regarded by others merely as a distasteful possibility is a note of interrogation which spencer could not have foreseen it is just the same with the belief with which at present so many materialistic natural scientists are content the belief in a world which is supposed to have its equivalent and measure in human thinking and human valuations a quote, world of truth, unquote, at which we might be able ultimately to arrive with the help of our insignificant four cornered human reason. What do we actually wish to have existence debased in that fashion to be a ready reckoner exercise and calculation for stay at home mathematicians? We should not. Above all, seek to divest the existence of its ambiguous character good taste forbids it, gentlemen, the taste of reverence for everything that goes beyond your horizon. That a world interpretation is alone right by which you maintain your position, by which investigation and work can go on scientifically in your sense paren you really mean mechanically in paren an interpretation which acknowledges numbering calculating weighing seeing and handling and nothing more such an idea is a piece of grossness and naivety provided it is not lunacy and idiocy would the reverse not be quite probable that the most superficial and external characters of existence, its most apparent quality, its outside, its embodiment, should let themselves be apprehended first? Perhaps alone allow themselves to be apprehended? A scientific interpretation of the world, as you understand it, might consequently still be one of the stupidest, that is to say, the most destitute of significance, of all possible world interpretations. I say this in confidence to my friends the mechanicians, who today like to hobnob with philosophers, and absolutely believe that mechanics is the teaching of the first and last laws upon which, as upon a ground floor, all existence must be built, but an essentially mechanical world would be an essentially meaningless world suppose we valued the worth of a music with reference to how much it could be counted calculated or formulated how absurd would such a quote, "scientific" unquote, estimate of music would be what would one have apprehended understood or discerned in it nothing absolutely nothing of what is really quote, "music" unquote, in it 374 our new quote, "infinite" unquote. how far the perspective character of existence extends or whether it has any other character at all whether an existence without explanation Without sense does not just become nonsense. Whether, on the other hand, all existence is not essentially an explaining existence. These questions, as is right and proper, cannot be determined even by the most diligent and severely conscientious analysis and self-examination of the intellect. Because in this analysis, the human intellect cannot avoid seeing itself in its perspective forms, and only in them. We cannot see round our corner. It is hopeless curiosity to want to know what other modes of intellect and perspective there might be. For example, whether any kind of being could perceive time backwards, or alternatively forwards and backwards by which another direction of life and another conception of cause and effect would be given. But I think that we are today at least far from the ludicrous immodesty of decreeing from our nook that there can only be legitimate perspectives from that nook. The world, on the contrary, has once more become quote, infinite, unquote, to us in so far we cannot dismiss the possibility that it contains infinite interpretations once more the great horror seizes us but who would desire forthwith to deify once more this monster of an unknown world in the old fashion and perhaps worship the unknown thing as the quote, "unknown person" unquote, in future ah There are too many ungodly possibilities of interpretation comprised in this unknown. Too much devilment, stupidity, and folly of interpretation. Also our own human, all too human interpretation itself, which we know. 375 why we seem to be Epicureans. We are cautious, we modern men, with regard to final convictions. Our distrust lies in wait for the enchantments and tricks of conscience evolved in every strong belief, in every absolute yea and nay. How is this explained? Perhaps one may see in it a good deal of the caution of the quote, "burned child" unquote, of the disillusioned idealist but one may also see in it another and better element the joyful curiosity of a former lingerer in the corner who has been brought to despair by his nook and now luxuriates and revels in its antithesis In the unbounded, in the open air in itself. Thus there is developed an almost epicurean inclination for knowledge, which does not readily lose sight of the questionable character of things. Likewise also a repugnance to pompous moral phrases and attitudes a taste that repudiates all coarse, square contrasts, and is proudly conscious of its habitual reserve. For this, too, constitutes our pride, this easy tightening of the reins in our headlong impulse after certainty, this self-control of the rider in his most furious riding. For now, as of old, we have mad, fiery steeds under us, and if we delay, it is certainly least of all the danger which causes us to delay 376 our slow periods it is thus that artists feel and all men of quote, "works" unquote, "the maternal species of men" they always believe that every chapter of their life a work always makes a chapter that they have already reached the goal itself They would always patiently accept death with the feeling, We are ripe for it. This is not an expression of exhaustion, but rather that of a certain autumnal sunniness and mildness which the work itself, the maturing of the work, always leaves behind in its originator. Then the tempo of life slows down, turns thick and flows with honey into long pauses, into the belief in the long pause. 3.7.7. We Homeless Ones Among the Europeans of today there are not lacking those who may call themselves homeless ones, in a way which is at once a distinction and an honour. It is by them that my secret wisdom and gaya scienza is expressly to be laid to heart. For their lot is hard, their hope uncertain. It is a clever feat to devise consolation for them, but what good does it do? We children of the future, how could we be at home in the present? We are unfavourable to all ideals which could make us feel at home in this frail, broken-down transition period. And as regards the quote, realities unquote, thereof, We do not believe in their endurance. The ice, which still carries us, has become very thin. The thawing wind blows. We ourselves, the homeless ones, are an influence that breaks the ice and the other all-too-thin realities. We preserve nothing, nor would we return to any past age we are not at all quote, "liberal" unquote. we do not labor for quote, "progress" unquote. we do not need first to stop our ears to the song of the marketplace and the sirens of the future their song of quote, "equal rights" unquote. Quote, "free society" unquote. Quote, "no longer either lords or slaves" unquote. does not allure us WE DO NOT BY ANY MEANS THINK OF IT DESIRABLE THAT THE KINGDOM OF RIGHTEOUSNESS AND PEACE SHOULD BE ESTABLISHED ON EARTH, paren, BECAUSE UNDER ANY CIRCUMSTANCE IT WOULD BE THE KINGDOM OF THE PROFOUNDEST mediocrity AND CHINAISM. End paren. WE REJOICE IN ALL MEN WHO, LIKE OURSELVES, LOVE DANGER, WAR, AND ADVENTURE, WHO DO NOT MAKE COMPROMISES nor let themselves be captured conciliated or stunted we count ourselves among the conquerors we ponder over the need for a new order of things even of a new slavery for every strengthening and elevation of the type quote, man unquote, also involves a new form of slavery is it not obvious that with all this we must feel ill, at ease, in an age which claims the honour of being the most humane, gentle, and just that the sun has ever seen? What a pity that at the mere mention of these fine words the thoughts at the back of our minds are all the more unpleasant, that we see therein only the expression, or the masquerade, of profound weakening, exhaustion, age, and declining power. What can it matter to us? With what kind of tinsel an invalid decks out his weakness? He may parade it as his virtue. There is no doubt, whatever, that weakness makes people gentle, alas, so gentle, so just, so inoffensive, so, humane, unquote the quote, religion of pity unquote, to which people would like to persuade us yes we know sufficiently well the hysterical little men and women who need this religion at present as a cloak and adornment we are no humanitarians we should not dare to speak of our quote, love of mankind unquote. for that a person of our stamp is not enough of an actor or not sufficiently st simonist not sufficiently French. A person must have been affected with a Gaelic excess of erotic susceptibility and amorous impatience, even to approach mankind honourably with his lewdness. Mankind! Was there ever a more hideous old woman among all old women? Paren. Unless perhaps it were, quote, the truth, unquote. A question for philosophers? End paren. No, we do not love mankind. On the other hand, however, we are not nearly quote, German unquote, enough, paren, in the sense in which the word quote, German unquote, is current at present, end paren, to advocate nationalism and race hatred, or take delight in the national heart itch and blood-poisoning, on account of which the nations of Europe are at present bounded off and secluded from one another as if by quarantines. We are too unprejudiced for that, too perverse, too fastidious, also too well-informed, and too much travelled. We prefer much rather to live on mountains, apart and quote, "'out of season', unquote, in past or coming centuries, in order merely to spare ourselves the silent rage to which we know we should be condemned as witnesses of a system of politics which makes the German nation barren by making it vain, and which is a petty system besides. Will it not be necessary for this system to plant itself between two mortal hatreds, lest its own creation should immediately collapse will it not be obliged to desire the perpetuation of the petty state system of europe we homeless ones are too diverse and mixed in race and descent as quote, modern men, unquote, and are consequently little tempted to participate in the falsified race self-admiration and lewdness which at present displays themselves in Germany as signs of German sentiment and which strike one as doubly false and unbecoming in the people with the quote, historical sense, unquote. we are in a word and it shall be our word of honour, good Europeans, the heirs of Europe, the rich, over-wealthy heirs, also the two deeply pledged heirs of millenniums of European thought. As such, we have outgrown Christianity, and are disinclined to it, and just because we have grown out of it, Because our forefathers were Christians uncompromising in their Christian integrity, who willingly sacrificed possessions and positions, blood and country, for the sake of their belief, we do the same. For what then? For our own unbelief? For all sorts of unbelief? Nay, ye know better than that, my friends. The hidden yea. In you is stronger than all the nays and perhapses of which you and your age are sick. And when you are obliged to put out to sea, you immigrants, it is, once more, a faith which urges you thereto. 3.7.8 And once more grow clear. We, the generous and rich in spirit, who stand at the sides of the street like open fountains, and would hinder no one from drinking from us, we do not know, alas, how to defend ourselves when we should like to do so. We have no means of preventing ourselves being made turbid and dark, We have no means of preventing the age in which we live casting its up-to-date rubbish into us, nor of hindering filthy birds throwing their excrement, the boys their trash, and the fatigued resting travellers their misery, great and small, into us. But we do as we have always done. We take whatever is cast into us down into our depths. For we are deep, we do not forget, and once more grow clear. 379. The Fool's Interruption It is not a misanthrope who has written this book. The hatred of men costs too dear to-day, to hate, as they formerly hated man, in the fashion of Timon, completely, Without qualification, with all the heart, from the pure love of hatred. For that purpose, one should have to renounce contempt. And how much refined pleasure, how much patience, how much benevolence even do we owe to contempt? Moreover, we are thereby the elect of God. Refined contempt is our taste and privilege, our art our virtue, perhaps. We, the most modern among the moderns. Hatred, on the contrary, makes equal. It puts man face to face. In hatred there is honour. Finally, in hatred there is fear, quite a large amount of fear. We fearless ones, however, we, the most intellectual men of the period, know our advantage well enough to live without fear as the most intellectual persons of this age. People will not easily behead us, shut us up, or banish us. They will not even ban or burn our books. The age loves intellect. It loves us, and needs us, even when we have to give to it to understand that we are artists in despising. That all intercourse with men is something of a horror to us that with all our gentleness, patience, humanity, and courteousness we cannot persuade our nose to abandon its prejudice against the proximity of man, that we love nature the more, the less humanly things are done by her, and that we love art when it is the flight of the artist from man, or the raillery of the artist at man, or the raillery of the artist at himself." 380 The Wanderer unquote, Speaks. In order for once to get a glimpse of our European morality from a distance, in order to compare it with the other earlier or future moralities, we must do as a traveller who wants to know the height of the towers of a city. For that purpose, he leaves the city. Quote, thoughts concerning moral prejudices, if they are not to be prejudices concerning prejudices, presuppose a position outside of morality, some sort of world beyond good and evil, to which one must ascend, climb, or fly, and in the given case at any rate, a position beyond our good and evil, an emancipation from all quote, Europe, unquote, understood as a sum of inviolable valuations, which have become part and parcel of our flesh and blood. That one wants, in fact, to get outside or aloft is perhaps a sort of madness, a peculiarly unreasonable quote, thou must, unquote. for even we thinkers have our idiosyncrasies of quote, unfree will. Unquote. The question is whether one can really get there. That may depend on manifold conditions. In the main, it is a question of how light or how heavy we are, the problem of our specific gravity. One must be very light in order to impel one's will to knowledge to such a distance and, as it were, beyond one's age in order to create eyes for oneself for the survey of millenniums, and a pure heaven in these eyes besides. One must have freed oneself from many things by which we Europeans of today are oppressed, hindered, held down, and made heavy. The man of such a quote, beyond unquote, who wants to get even in sight of the highest standards of worth of his age he must first of all quote, surmount unquote, this age in himself. It is a test of his power, and consequently not only his age, but also his past aversion and opposition to his age, his suffering caused by his age his unseasonableness, his romanticism. three eighty one The Question of Intelligibility One not only wants to be understood when one writes, but also, quite certainly, not to be understood. It is by no means an objection to a book when someone finds it unintelligible. Perhaps this might just have been the intention of its author perhaps did he not want to be understood by quote, "anyone" unquote. a distinguished intellect and taste when it wants to communicate its thoughts always selects its hearers by selecting them it at the same time closes its barriers against quote, "the others" unquote. It is there that all the more refined laws of style have their origin. They at the same time keep off. They create distance. They prevent, quote, access, unquote. Paren, intelligibility, as we have said, paren. While they open the ears of those who are acoustically related to them, and to say it between ourselves and with reference to my own case, I do not desire that either my ignorance or the vivacity of my temperament should prevent me from being understood by you, my friends. I certainly do not desire that my vivacity should have that effect, however much it may impel me to arrive quickly at an object, in order to arrive at it at all. For I think it best, to do with profound problems as with a cold bath quickly in, quickly out. That one does not thereby get down into the depths, that one does not get deep enough down, is a superstition of the hydrophobic, the enemies of cold water. They speak without experience. Oh, the great cold makes one quick. And let me ask, by the way, is it a fact that a thing has been misunderstood and unrecognized, when it has only been touched upon in passing, glanced at, flashed at, must one absolutely sit upon it in the first place? Must one have brooded on it, as on an egg? Dine you Incubando, as Newton said of himself? At least there are truths, of a peculiar shyness and ticklishness, which one can only get hold of suddenly, and in no other way, which one must either take by surprise or leave alone. Finally, my brevity has still another value. On those questions which preoccupy me, I must say a great deal briefly, in order that it may be heard yet more briefly, for, as immoralist, one has to take care lest one ruins innocence i mean the asses and old maids of both sexes who get nothing from life but their innocence moreover my writings are meant to fill them with enthusiasm to elevate them to encourage them to virtue i should be at a loss to know of anything more amusing than to see enthusiastic old asses and maids moved by the sweet feelings of virtue and "'that have I seen,' "'spake Zarathustra. "'So much with respect to brevity. "'The matter stands worse as regards my ignorance, "'of which I make no secret to myself. "'There are hours in which I am ashamed of it. "'To be sure, there are likewise hours "'in which I am ashamed of this shame. "'Perhaps we philosophers, all of us, are badly placed at present with regard to knowledge. Science is growing. The most learned of us are on the point of discovering that we know too little. But it would be worse still if it were otherwise, if we knew too much. Our duty is and remains, first of all, not to get into confusion about ourselves. We are different from the learned, Although it cannot be denied that amongst other things we are also learned, we have different needs, a different growth, a different digestion, we need more, we need also less. There is no formula as to how much an intellect needs for its nourishment. If, however, its taste be in the direction of independence, rapid coming and going, travelling, and perhaps adventure for which only the swiftest are qualified. It prefers rather to live free on poor fare than to be unfree and plethoric. Not fat, but the greatest suppleness and power is what a good dancer wishes from his nourishment, and I know not what the spirit of a philosopher would like better than to be a good dancer. For the dance is his ideal and also his art in the end likewise his soul piety his quote, divine service 382 great healthiness we the new the nameless the hard to understand we firstlings of a yet untried future we require for a new end also a new means, namely, a new healthiness, stronger, sharper, tougher, bolder, and merrier than any healthiness hitherto. He whose soul longs to experience the whole range of hitherto recognized values and desirabilities, and to circumnavigate all coasts of this ideal, quote, Mediterranean Sea, unquote who, from the adventures of his most personal experience, wants to know how it feels to be a conqueror and discoverer of the ideal, as likewise how it is with the artist, the saint, the legislator, the sage, the scholar, the devotee, the prophet, and the godly nonconformist of the old style, requires one thing above all for that purpose great healthiness such healthiness as one not only possesses but also constantly acquires and must acquire because one continually sacrifices it again and must sacrifice it and now after having been long on the way in this fashion we argonauts of the ideal who are more courageous perhaps than prudent and often enough shipwrecked and brought to grief Nevertheless, as said above, healthier than people would like to admit, dangerously healthy, always healthy again, it would seem, as if in recompense for it all, that we have still an undiscovered country before us, the boundary of which no one has yet seen, a beyond all countries and corners of the ideal known hitherto, a world so over-rich in the beautiful, The strange, the questionable, the frightful, and the divine, that our curiosity as well as our thirst for possession thereof has got out of hand. Alas, that nothing will now any longer satisfy us. How could we still be content with the man of the present day after such peeps, with such a craving in our conscience and consciousness? What a pity! But it is unavoidable that we should look on the worthiest aims and hopes of man of the present day with an ill-concealed amusement, and perhaps should no longer look at them. Another ideal runs on before us, a strange, tempting ideal, full of danger, to which we should not like to persuade anyone, because we do not so readily acknowledge anyone's right thereto the ideal of a spirit who plays naively that is to say involuntarily and from overflowing abundance and power with everything that has hitherto been called holy, good, inviolable, divine, to whom the loftiest conception which the people have reasonably made their measure of value would already imply danger, ruin, abasement, or at least relaxation, blindness, or temporary self-forgetfulness, the ideal of a humanly superhuman welfare and benevolence, which may often enough appear inhuman, for example, when put by the side of all past seriousness on earth, and in comparison with all past solemnities in bearing, word, tone, look, morality, and pursuit, as their truest involuntary parody, but with which, nevertheless, perhaps the great seriousness only commences, the proper interrogation mark is set up, the fate of the soul changes, the hour hand moves, and tragedy begins. 383. EPILOGUE While I slowly, slowly finish the painting of this sombre interrogation mark, and am still inclined to remind my readers of the virtue of right reading—oh, what forgotten and unknown virtues!—it comes to pass that the wickedest, merriest, gnome-like laughter resounds around me—the spirits of my book themselves pounce upon me, pull me by the ears, and call me to order. We cannot endure it any longer, they shouted me. Away, away with this raven black music! Is it not clear morning around us? And green, soft ground and turf, the domain of the dance? Was there ever a better hour in which to be joyful? Who will sing us a song? A morning song, so sunny, so light, so fledged that it will not scare the tantrums, but will, rather, invite them to take part in the singing and dancing, and better a simple rustic bagpipe than such weird sounds, such toad croakings, grey voices, and marmot pipings with which you have hitherto regaled us in your wilderness, Mr. Anchorite, and musician of the future. No, not such tones. But let us strike up a thing more agreeable and more joyful. You would like to have it so, my impatient friends? Well, who would not willingly accord with your wishes? My bagpipe is waiting and my voice also. It may sound a little hoarse. Take it as it is. Don't forget we are in the mountains. But what you will hear is at least new. And if you do not understand it, if you misunderstand the singer, what does it matter? That has always been, the singer's curse, unquote. Translator's footnote, title of the well-known poem of Uland. End footnote. So much the more distinctly can you hear his music and melody. So much the better also can you dance to his piping. Would you like to do that? End of book fifth. We Fearless Ones.